Let's talk about family reunions, okay? You like them? Yes. No. I heard that the first thing I heard was a no. Um, huh? Well, you know, yeah. Uh, my, it's interesting because my family, um, uh, when I was growing up, uh, we, we spent a lot of time with both sides of family, with my mom's side, the cherry side. Um, uh, it's kind of like a, almost like a weekly thing. Um, um, uh, it's kind of interesting. We, um, we got um, uh, here uh, to Oklahoma. His dad was helping start the business in 1962 or so. And uh, uh, from Paul's Valley, you hear me talk about Paola and Paul's Valley quite a bit. But, uh, but when we moved here, um, uh, at the time we were moving here, my grandfather lived with us. I had a cousin that was living with us in a, in a two-bedroom house. We'll figure out how that worked. But, but um, um, uh, when, so when we moved here, I didn't know anyone, hardly, at least the, except those that I met at school, and, uh, you know. But um, uh, we really, almost every weekend, would go back to Garvin County. There's, so there's kind of a reunion every weekend. Um, and, and I remember Skip on, on our side of the family, on the Seton side of the family, um, uh, one of the, isn't it interesting that family reunions always involve food? You know, there was always people bringing stuff on, on my mom's side of the family. Uh, on Skip's side, everybody bought a freezer of ice cream. So that, you know, um, that, that's uh, why I'm a well-rounded individual today. But um, isn't it interesting? And I remember in those times, especially um, when we'd be an hour away from here and everybody would be there, we'd be having a great time. You hated to kind of leave. And you say, see you next time, or see you next month, or whatever. Um, sometimes if your families are like many families, it's see you next year, or I'll see you in two years. Now, there is woven into the, um, the way God has put together the family of faith, kind of these family reunions. We're going to call them festivals or feasting days, holy days. Um, uh, the first Passover uh, that was celebrated in Egypt then became an annual celebration. John covered that last week. Um, it was kind of the first feast of the year. It was followed, um, it was demonstrated um, to the Israelites that, that there was freedom to be found, that God was on their side. Uh, God had created for himself a family of faith and that was kind of their coming out part. It was kind of the beginning, really, in some ways, of, of the Israelite nation um, um, in, in, in some very significant ways uh, because they left, they came to Egypt, maybe 75 or so in number. They left Egypt two and a half million in number and then began to try to live together. So as they uh, lived in the... Um, in, in the wilderness for all those years, you know, those 40 years of wandering, uh, continuing to take laps around Mount Sinai instead of heading straight to the promised land. Uh, God led them, but also he provided for them. He met, his, met their needs. He provided water, and he provided uh, food, and a victory over the Amalekites. And uh, So they cut to this kind of interim destination after another huge... Um, uh, event took place. If, if Passover wasn't enough, only a few days hence after Passover, uh, the crossing of the Red Sea and that whole 
situation with Pharaoh had kind of decided he'd let him go and then changed his mind. And, and that miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, which again is part of the celebration. Well, uh, so they get to their new destination, which is around Mount Sinai, and they get there about 90 days after Passover, about the third month or so after Passover. Now, the Israelites knew that God was the Lord. They'd been taught that. They'd certainly seen it demonstrated in the Passover and in the Red Sea crossing. But they begin to wonder, what does he expect from us? And so God gives them the law, and that's, this is one of those books from the law. What was God's expectation? So, um, they're going to stay at Sinai almost a year while they're uh, getting instructions on what God expects. He expects them, for instance, to rest on the seventh day. He's going to tell them about that. We're going to read about it in Exodus 16. He's going to give them other uh, kind of rules and laws to help them live together and live rightly before him. And in chapter 20 of Exodus, we have the Ten Commandments that lay some of that out. Uh, they're going to celebrate or read uh, as they kind of get these laws together, 70, just around about 70 rules that the people needed in order to govern social relationships. They weren't as much as a bill of rights as they were as a, a bill of responsibilities. And so these laws, for the first time, kind of deal with how does this nation uh, live together? How do we work together? And as a beginning of this, they're going to establish three festivals during the, the process of a year, reunions, if you will, during the process of a year. Um, last week, we talked about the Passover festival. Um, uh, this was a one-day observance, um, but it was followed also by seven days of eating unleavened bread, and there was, there was um, the kind of a, a, a reducing of of the pressure of work and all those kind of things for those eight days together. So uh, really those two kind of, kind of be considered as one, the Passover and, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, there would be a, a few more coming, but we're, today we're going to talk about the second of these annual feasts, um, which we're going to call, at least for today, the Festival of Weeks. Now, this is the only one that is not associated with a historical event like Passover was. There's a tradition that, um, in fact, I did some reading this week on a Jewish website. There's a tradition that this celebrates the giving of the Ten Commandments by Moses, but that's kind of extra-biblical and uh, post-biblical. So uh, the idea really is that this, this reunion was to be celebrated seven weeks after Passover. Therefore, it would take place uh, in late May or early June. And um, it's called the Festival of Weeks because it's the adding of weeks. We're going to talk about that. It's sometimes called the Festival of Harvest because it surrounded harvest time. Um, sometimes it's called the, the Day of First Fruits. We'll talk about what that means. In the church, we call it Pentecost, 50 days. Uh, and we're going to kind of deal with what all that that the Bible has to say to us about that. Now, Bob, um, now that you found your outline, he was nervous while ago because he couldn't find his outline. Um, can we start with verse 15 and just read 15 and 16 for now?
Okay, now, I think we can help, I can help you a little bit to, to sync this up um, based on some of the research I've done this week. This year, okay, this year, um, um, the, this period of weeks that we're dealing with, actually, Passover and uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this year is the 22nd of April through the 30th of April. So if you looked at your calendar, I think you're going to see that that begins on a Friday and it ends the following Sunday. Not, not two days hence, but, but the following Sunday. Um, uh, it'll help you to remember kind of some of the things that were happening in the New Testament during uh, Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, you remember the, 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 uh, in John 13, the Lord's Supper uh, that took place on Thursday night uh, before Passover began. Uh, all that kind of thing. So uh, we kind of get that. So really, when you, if if the beginning, if Passover itself was a Sabbath day, then you've got two more within that eight-day celebration kind of deal deal with. So there's a little problematic situation here about which Sabbath we're talking about. We're going to choose the most conservative one to kind of help us with. But the word Sabbath, I think we've got to deal with, is the word ceasing. Ceasing. You can put that up, I put it in, uh, in parentheses and in quotes here. The word Sabbath means a ceasing. A ceasing what? From work. Okay, from um, some outside pressure that will allow us, um, that, that would kind of get in the way of worship in, the, in this case. Now, um, so what we got to deal with a little bit, the, the, kind of the question is, which Sabbath do we begin, begin to count to get to the festival of weeks. By the New Testament, the Pharisees um, had one view of it, and the Sadducees um, had another. But the Sadducees had control of the temple, so they were kind of in charge. They, also the calendar. They had um, kind of the, the view here that, um, that you began counting from the weekly Sabbath at the end of uh, kind of this celebration. So... Uh, really then that 50 days or that week of weeks uh, would, would be Pentecost here or, or the festival of, um, of weeks. It's a one-day celebration. It's not weeks of celebration, but you count weeks to get there. would be 50 days or from Saturday, from the Saturday of Passover, okay, it would be seven weeks and one day, 50 days, so the, the beauty of it is, it's always going to be celebrated on Sunday. Always going to be celebrated on Sunday, which is very meaningful for you and me. 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's going to be, it's going to be celebrated on the first day of the week, which you and I know was when um, the church began on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the celebration of Unleavened Bread. So... Um, uh, that's kind of interesting uh, that the, the calendar would fall that way. Um, it, you might just look some of this stuff up if you're interested as we study these different feast days, what other feasts are celebrated still in the Jewish calendar year. But this was a very, very important one. And it would be celebrated then 50 days later. So it's, it's that seven weeks that causes this to be called the Feast of Weeks. Now, I'm going to ask, a, I'm just going to ask a question I'm going to hang it over uh, us today as we go on for a little bit for you to think about. You notice I mentioned within this first week of celebration that John talked about last week, first eight days, which was Passover, there were three Sabbaths. There were three ceasings. 
Friday, Saturday, and the next Saturday, right? My question is, is there a regular period of ceasing in your life? Is there a Sabbath in your life? If I read the scriptures correctly, certainly the Old Testament scriptures, if I read them correctly, it would seem to me that a Sabbath is part of the rhythm of things the way God made it. What makes me think that? Well, for one thing, reading the first two chapters of the Bible. God himself rested. Is that because he was tired? Was he experiencing burnout? Probably not. It's because he was setting a pattern. In my world, in my life, anytime I defy that pattern, I pay a price for it. So I just want to hang that over. We'll, we'll deal with that in a little bit, okay? Now, the celebrations, I've already said, is known as the Festival of Weeks. Weeks. Would somebody go to, John, I see you over there. Would you go to Exodus 34, 22? Let me hand a couple of others out here that we can kind of take a look at because I think it's going to be important that we get some other things. Uh, Exodus 34, 22. So you're going to go back a book, and then I need somebody else to go forward a book to Numbers 28, 26. Who will get that? Numbers 28, 26. Oh, thank you, Eileen. Okay. Now, the celebration here is known as the Festival of Weeks, and you and I are going to call it kind of a week of weeks, 49 days, that it's uh, kind of centered on. All right? Now, let's read a little bit about what's going to happen here. John, would you? Okay, now, interestingly, you've got to be careful here that we understand the first feast days, that the first festival that John was dealing about with last week, the festival of Passover and unleavened bread, was also a harvest time. It, was, it began at the barley harvest. And so there was an offering of grain they brought then. Fifty days later, it's going to be later in the spring, and it's going to be during the wheat harvest. So they're bringing the first fruits of grain to this one too. So the unleavened bread uh, feast began in early spring, um, kind of marking the barley harvest. This festival happens during wheat harvest, late May or early June. And uh, you heard, heard um, now, uh, kind of the detail on that. Now, somebody read, uh, okay, Eileen, would you read Numbers 28, 26? couple of things there. If you catch it, we're going we're gonna to try to apply this a little bit. Hold a sacred assembly and don't work. Get together for this purpose, it says. Okay, We're going to celebrate something. We're going to offer uh, uh, an offering to God and, and do all those things. So this idea of a sacred assembly is really, really important here. Now, let's deal with, Bob, if you'll pick it up here, let's deal with what they're supposed to bring to dinner. All right? It's actually not to dinner, it's for sacrifice, but here we go.
The word sacred is used a lot in here, and we're going to have to kind of deal with that. But let's deal a little bit with how, the, how this kind of feast starts, or this festival starts. It begins with offerings, and it has to do with, um, this particular one begins, uh, the first offering um, is, is from the fruit of the ground, from, from um, uh, the wheat harvest, there to put together a couple of large, the word that goes in the blank here is large loaves. Okay, two large loaves. Now let's talk about that. Uh, Bob pronounced it all well and all that. Says these loaves are to be made from about two tenths of an ephah of uh, or a fifth of an ephah of grain or or wheat um, or in this case flour. Now an ephah, in a little bit of research, is uh, three fifths of a bushel or what they called a homer. Okay. Get your ephahs and your homers mixed up, all right? Okay. Now, two-tenths of an ephah then would be about an eighth of a bushel. Now, not being a farmer, I don't really get that, although I did used to sing to my kids, I love you a bushel and a peck, a bushel and a peck and a hug around the neck. Okay, so that's about as, I don't know the difference between a bushel and a peck, I just know the sign, the song. Okay. Um, so two-tenths of an ephah would be about an eighth of a bushel or um, 18.6 cups of flour. That's a big loaf. Okay. Four quarts. The message calls it four quarts. Okay. That's that's a little short of eighteen point six, but it's about that'd be sixteen cups, wouldn't it? A quart in four quarts, four cups in a quart. Okay. So close, but it was nonetheless. I don't know how much if you've made stuff out of flour. That's a bunch of flour. And they're supposed to make two of those big guys. And they give them to the priest. Now, this is interesting. The priest gets to, um, uh, the priest gets to, uh, they offer them kind of symbolically. We're going to talk about a wave offering in a minute. But one of them goes really home with the, um, with the high priest and the other one with who, whatever the other priest is that's working that day. So, um, um, but they're great big loaves of bread. Now, uh, I, I find this interesting that, that it's kind of got all this biblical language. Um, it, it's, you know, it's part of a homer. It's an ephah, which uh, it, thus the saying in Israel, he's a couple of ephahs shy of a homer. Okay, I mean, that, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, I, that, that's how they would have described me in ancient Israel. He's just a couple of cups couple of ephahs shy of a homer. Okay, so, yeah, got that. Now, uh, so um, they were to be, um, they were not to be burned as a sacrifice. They were to be waved. Okay, so kind of got to get this idea. Get this great big loaf of bread. Okay, and you got a priest putting it over his head and he's, okay, doing the wave with this big loaf of bread. That was symbolic of offering the first fruits of the harvest to God. You got that? Okay. Uh, yeah, it's kind of the Oklahoma State thing, except you got a loaf of bread between your hands, okay? Yeah. All right. Got that? Uh, I just find it interesting, a wave off. Now, there were other offerings, obviously, that Bob read about that follows that, okay? Um, so this wave offering, though, begins up with these two large loaves, okay? Verse 18, it's also going to include sacrifices of animal 
grain, and drink. So 10 animals in all, it kind of delineates those, are going to be sacrificed literally as, uh, as burnt offerings. This is going to have an interesting aroma to it. And I mean that positively. It's going to smell like a barbecue. Okay. Um, if you noticed, I love, love living in Oklahoma for a lot of reasons, but the, I, don't you love driving up to a barbecue restaurant? You, you smell it before you can see it. I, I just love that. So you've got to get this in your mind. You've got, you've got the smell of baked bread and you've got barbecue going on. I mean, what couldn't be more fun for a family reunion than barbecue and bread, right? But you've got ten animals that are, that are offered as sacrifices to God and some grain and wine. Now, produce of the day are, are um, offered there. So animal, animal, grain, and drink sacrifices here. Now, let me read verse 19 to you again. Is that clock right? Thank you. I never know. Huh? It does change. I know. Uh, look at verse 19. You shall also offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs at one year old for a sacrifice of peace offering. We'll talk about that for a minute. But I had the question, I, kind of the question come through my mind. You know, I've got a little kind of a, kind of a creative but a little bit sick mind. What if when you came to church you had to bring a goat with you? That would be just really interesting, wouldn't it? They had to bring a goat, and the goat was going to be offered. And then they also had to bring um, um, a couple of lambs. Now, the goat symbolizes forgiveness. It's a sin offering. Do you catch that? So the goat gets offered, and, um, and uh, prayer is offered by the priests for the gathered people of God for their collective sins. By the way, you know what the book of Hebrews says about that? Read it this week. What do they do with all these goats and sheep? I mean, if every family brings one. That's a bunch of them. Uh, I think of some of, the, some of the conversation that you read about um, uh, Bethlehem, for instance, and you read about Jerusalem, is the amount of blood involved in all this. It's incredible. But here's the thought. Here's the thought. The book of Hebrews says, I'm going to all this trouble, right? And the book of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats never did take away sin. Am I misquoting that? You want chapter 10? The blood of bulls and goats never did. So why go to the trouble? They were getting ready for a sacrifice that would take away sin. And you and I know him. It's talking here about two lambs. It's talked earlier about other lambs that had to be spotless and a year old. The goat would symbolize forgiveness. The live lambs, and by the way, they're offered not as, as sacrificial offerings, at least yet. They're offered as live lambs, and they're offered as what is called sometimes in the scriptures a fellowship offering, or in other places it's called a peace offering. So you can put the word peace in the blank. The loaves were waved. And these two sheep, these two lambs, now, they get waved too. Okay, I can see, okay, I get putting a big loaf of bread over my head and, 
you know, ride them cowboy on down the field. I get, I get that. But what about a wriggling live lamb? That's a different deal. It's heavier, for one thing, right? And it's harder to handle. So you got to get this in your mind. This priest with this baby sheep, a year old, waving it as well. There is some symbolism here. There's an offering here. And I've got to kind of see this. The wave is as challenging as it is symbolic. It's hard, difficult. One loaf goes to the high priest. One loaf goes to the other priest, the officiating priest. The lambs kind of the same way. They'll offer them as sacrifices, but they'll take a portion of those lambs home with them to eat. That's, uh, this is kind of a, a, a precursor to um, providing for um, clergy families, that kind of thing. I was never paid in large lobes or mutton. But we've been paid in all kinds of things over the years. You know, I mean, you know. Uh, do what? Uh, you know, when I, when I we lived in Florida, remember Rhonda, we'd, they didn't pay, couldn't pay us very much at this little Methodist church we were working. But, and we had to drive like an hour one way to get to church. But, but uh, I drove an old GMC pickup in those days. And nearly every Sunday there'd be citrus in the back of my truck because they were all orange farm, orange growers. Yeah. So there'd be some kind of citrus in the back, you know, or something else, you know. Or somebody in Kentucky would bring us potatoes or tomatoes, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, there's kind of that, kind of that precedent here. Produce for the provision of the clergy. Yes. Is there anything significant about it in the flour had yeast? It's really interesting. Good question, Katie, and I only touched on it. So, so thanks for making me talk about this for a second. It's interesting, the Feast of Unleavened Bread left it out because it was uh, symbolic of um, corruption. And the Passover feast kind of included that. But here, 50 days later, it's a full celebration. Uh, use the yeast. Uh, I, there probably is some symbolism there. I'm, I'm kind of hard-pressed to figure it out. But I think it's very interesting that these loaves were fully rise, you know, they were, and, and, uh, and yeast was used. Yeah? Does that represent evil? It does, but I don't think it does here. I don't think it does here. I don't think it does here. I'll do a little more research. We'll find out. Okay? Uh, typically it does. Leaven represents uh, corruption. But why would it be included in what is called a sacred feast here if it was considered corrupt here? So we'll just have to figure that one out. All right, now, let's go on. Bob, go read verse 21 and 22, and we'll kind of close this out here in a minute. Like I said, somebody read verse 21 and 22. <laughs> couple of things we got to deal with here. First of all, it's obvious 
The word is used time and time and time again. That's why I'm not real sure that the introduction of yeast back into this kind of takes anything away from the moment. Because it says here again, this is the second or third time in these few verses that it's used the word sacred to describe this day. This is to be a sacred moment. A sacred moment in time. It's to be captured in time as a sacred moment. And one of the ways it says to do that is take off from work. Nobody works. They fix the meals the day before. Uh, by the way, are you aware that in Jewish law, there is still some law on the use, of, there's some law today on the use of microwave, whether you can or cannot. It's a very, very, very interesting point. Regular, so. Yes, in other words, everybody's off that. It's, it's a holiday. Yep, yep, okay. And there's sap, but it's still a Sabbath. It's the idea of no Sabbath work. There's a certain amount you can do, and then beyond that, you can't. There's a certain amount you can walk, and beyond that, you can't. Okay, so, so the, it's a sacred moment. No work, first. And second, the, the admonishment here in verse 21 is not only is this supposed to be sacred to you, and this is one of the ways you're going to make it be sacred, but secondly, you need to perpetuate this. Do it every year. It needs to keep coming back. Needs to keep coming back. It's sacred enough that this isn't just a one-shot deal. It's supposed to come back. Now, the second uh, verse that, that uh, we read a minute ago um, doesn't seem like it connects with the rest of these verses we've studied, but it really does. Uh, verse 22 is an admonishment to landowners and land workers. So the farmer, and most of them were, um, it, it was, there was an admonishment of something to do in the field. And the, the word I'm going to use here, the phrase I'm going to use, is he just said, when you're harvesting your field, remember this, this comes during the, the Feast of Harvest. When you harvest your field, cut corners. Put that in your line. Cut corners. Right? Now, typically we think of cutting corners as not a good thing, right? What does cutting a corner mean? Left something out, uh, you know. Um, um, once had a person that left something out of a cheesecake they made for me on a special time, and it kind of it was a little bit. But okay, um, huh? Uh, it was kind of unleavened cheese. It was something like that. About going there, but you know, you you don't leave stuff out. You be careful not to cut a corner. Okay. But here he's saying, cut a corner. Why? Leave for the poor. Leave for the poor. Now, now, the idea here is, because it's harvest time, God wants you to show what is important to him, and he says, I care about those who are in need. Now, I want you to go with me. Go, go back, a cut, oh, uh, actually forward, two or three books, to the book of Ruth. Joshua judges Ruth. Okay? This is part of Jesus' story. It's part of David's story. Part of, um, of um, Jesse's story. Ruth 2, I'm going to read just one verse. Ruth 2, 17. Here it goes. Ruth is going to glean in the corners of one of those fields owned by a guy by the name of Boaz that they fall in love with one another. Here's what it says. 
So I'm going to back up to 16. You shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it so that she may glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. There's that word again. Now, here's the deal. There's provision for those that are less fortunate. Woven into a festival day. Woven into the harvest. Now, by the way, study this if you'd like. In my study of it, it's not that they're standing, they, it's not that they put a, uh, a grain stand in the field and uh, anybody who comes, they're handing it to them. They've got to do the work of getting it. Ruth worked hard to glean that field. By the way, she didn't work quite as hard because Boaz was eyeballing her and he, uh, he made sure the guys were dropping stuff in front of her so she could pick it up pretty easy. But you get the point. There was a provision there. Now, Hebrews 10 talks about the gathering in sacred assemblies. Let me finish your, um, your blanks here. The sacred gathering of God's people seems to be here, never to be taken lightly. You ever been to one of those family reunions we've talked about and someone just doesn't show up? And you find out later they just kind of chose not to show up? How do you feel about that? It's not a good feeling, is it? The sacred gathering of God's people, these reunions are not to be taken lightly. The, the Bible says here in Hebrews 10, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And he goes on to say, as some are in the habit of doing. It's important for us to gather in these sacred gatherings. Well, so don't take it lightly. They're not to be taken lightly and they're not to be forgotten. And I want to... I'm going to give you two things to think about about this. The reason I believe the Bible is really clear on this is because sacred assemblies are important to us. These reunions are important to us to, be, to continue to be called the people of God. And second, this one and the others always mark something that has to do with forgiveness. And we regularly need to celebrate what trouble God has gone to for our forgiveness. It's pretty important here. All right? Now, make sure that you cut appropriate corners and don't cut corners in other ways, okay? And make sure that they can't say about you what they probably would say about me. He's two or three ephahs shy of a homer. Okay, all right. See you next week. We'll be in uh, 16 next week.